Hey guys, this is Cobain. Today what I want to talk about is a little phrase in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, Mark's resurrection narrative. And what I want to talk about is the reason why this phrase is used, and we can use that as a way of looking at some important principles in exegeting scripture in general. Before we get into that subject, however, I want to say welcome to all of my new viewers who have come through my day debate with Shabir through my appearance on Sam's channel about Reformed Theology and Predestination. Uh, I really hope you get something out of this material, um, and I ask that you guys keep me in your prayers when you think of me. Uh, if you are Orthodox, please uh, consider adding me to the list of names commemorated at your Sunday liturgy in the diptychs. Um, I would really profoundly appreciate that. Uh, and if you're able to do so, please uh, add me to your list of names whom you pray for daily. Uh, please also, if you get something out of these videos, consider becoming a patron. Your financial support is what enables me to spend uh, my time doing not only the production of these videos, but also all the related stuff that goes with it, engaging with people, um, helping where I can. Uh, and at the highest tier of my Patreon, which is $20 per month, it's 25 on YouTube if you prefer that as a platform, I have YouTube memberships, I guarantee an hour at least of one-on-one -on -one conversation every month if you want to take advantage of that. A number of people have said that that's been very useful and productive for them. So please consider that if you're financially able. If you are financially stretched, please do not consider that. I ask you, uh, do not contribute if that's the position you're in. Uh, but if you are in a good place in that part of your life, please consider uh, becoming a patron. There's also uh, certain videos which are exclusive to patrons, book reviews, uh, comments on um, certain texts, uh, and so on and so forth. But I like to keep most of my videos available to a universal audience. In any case, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the meat of it. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down on carnal desires may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and thee do we ascribe glory together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and then all holy good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. So, the phrase I want to look at is found in Mark chapter 16, verse 4. Uh, this is as the women go to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus on Easter morning. And I'll begin reading at verse 3, so you have a little bit of context. Uh, and they, that is the women, were saying to each other, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stole, the stone, had been rolled back. It was very large. And then it goes on, they see the angel, uh, and then you have everything that you are undoubtedly aware of. Now, what I want to ask you is, why does it say the stone was very large? This is something that's easy to pass over in the Bible. There's all sorts of little comments like this, which we might think are odd. They're, that's weird, but, you know, it's easy to pass them over. They're not necessarily obviously integral to the text and one might simply think well mark tells us it was a large stone well because it was a large stone but it's something like saying that uh, it was a clear day on may 15th and the sky was blue well of course the sky was blue everybody knows the sky is blue it's not something you need to be told explicitly to know that it's true but when it is 
noted. If it is noted, it is noted because the blueness of the sky, and that's not a specific thing which happens in Scripture. I'm just giving it as an analogous example. Because the blueness of the sky is relevant to the interpretation of the narrative wherein that obvious fact is taken note of. Because it's in the nature of the case that when you write a text, you are not giving every piece of information which is true about the scene which is being painted. This is one of the ways in which filmmaking and television is not just a visual form of novelization. There are certain aspects of the art forms themselves which mean that the media are different in what they are able to do and the way that they are able to do it. This is one of the things I really appreciate about um, George Lucas's work, uh, and this won't be a long question, that George Lucas's work, that he uh, appreciates the distinctive nature of the cinematic tradition, and he has contemplated the nature of that art form as a distinctive form. It's not just, oh, I'm a filmmaker, blah, 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 blah. It is something which he does intentionally, purposefully, and uh, with a, a substantial amount of awareness of the unique media in which he is medium in which he is working. So part of the nature of the case when you are writing something is that you have to be very selective about exactly what details you are going to select for inclusion in your narrative. If I tell you a story, even if I'm quite long-winded about it, most of the things which are true about the narrative I tell you are not going to be included in the story. If I'm recording a television show, by contrast, you will see the color of all of my surroundings. You are going to uh, note the existence of all of the surroundings, and thus you're going to have a lower, um, a less of a prima facie reason to think that any given detail, if it's just you know a run-of-the-mill average um, home filmmaker, you'll have less of a prima facie reason to think any given detail is part of a broader intention or program on the part of the person doing. The recording. However, when you're reading a book, especially ancient literature, where space is so precious and where the amount of people who are able to directly access your work is so small, when you're, act when you're reading literature, which is the product of a person who is part of this distinctive scribal tradition, expect some videos in the future on the idea of the scribe and the importance of that to biblical theology. I'm very excited about some of the things that I'm looking into now about this. But when you're working in this tradition, what you produce is produced with a great degree of intentionality. But when I say all of this, I say it to frame the question. You might be skeptical about uh, the reasons that I've provided. You might be skeptical that this particular detail has a theological or literary explanation, and that's okay. But I'm using it not to give you an answer, but to frame a question. Because that's half the battle, is asking the right questions of the text. If you ask the right questions, you can get answers. If you don't ask the questions, you're not going to learn any information. So the question is, why does Mark include this little phrase in his gospel? And the stone was very large. What is the reason for that? Now, if you want to find a reason for that, what it should do is it should make literary sense. It should be available to Mark. It should uh, make sense in terms of the immediate context of the narrative. But it should also make sense of the broader themes being invoked. When an author uses intertextuality, for example, if he makes allusion to another author, we must understand that this is not window dressing. It is not a homage to another author. It is important for interpreting the text. In other words, when you see 
that which is being alluded to, and you know it in its context, that is going to lead you to understand specific realities about that which is uh, about the author who is referencing the text. So, uh, what is Mark referencing? Well, I think it's actually quite straightforward. The way that I found this out is I was reading Mark's Gospel the other night, and I noticed this. The stone was very large, and I learned from James Jordan that whenever you have a weird detail of the text, you should always pay special attention to it. You should ask questions of it. And I said, why does Mark say the stone is very large? And so I did a word search. Search for all occurrences of the words a large stone together in the same verse in the Bible. And just you have a Bible program which helped me do that, and I saw it produced only a few results. I think it may have been only one result. Uh, and that was Genesis chapter 29. In Genesis chapter 9, we are told the stone on the mouth of the well, that is the opening of the well, was large. Now, if intertextuality, if the references of one text to one text by another text was window dressing, then our discussion would effectively end there, and we would learn absolutely nothing from it. Who cares if Mark is using this phrase because he read it in Genesis 29? Nobody cares. It tells us absolutely nothing at all. But if we understand the reason for intertextuality, the way in which intertextuality becomes significant in interpreting the text we are reading, then we can learn a great deal from a little phrase such as this. So the first thing we have to ask is, okay, is this actually a real illusion? And when we're looking at the Greek New Testament, the easiest way to do this, though it's not absolutely definitive, because sometimes the New Testament authors do, in fact, produce original translations of uh, the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes they do use a different word uh, for the same concept. For example, there might be different words for branch, but they might uh, use one of the words to echo an Old Testament text where the other word for branch is being used. Um, but the easiest way to check for a direct reference is to look at the Greek text of the Septuagint translation, because usually when the biblical authors are quoting or um, echoing the text, they will be echoing using the wording of the Septuagint. So you, I went and I checked the Septuagint, Genesis 29. There you go. It was, in fact, the same words for stone. It was the same word used for large, and it was the same word used for rolled away. So stone, large, and rolled away was all used together. Now, one thing which was interesting, which suggested to me immediately that this was an actual illusion, it was not just a figment of my imagination, is that I was searching for all occurrences of the words stone and large together. And that was it. But when I did find a reference to large stone, I found that it also included something I wasn't looking for, which was rolled away. That kind of relationship is the sort of thing one should be looking for if one's to one wants to establish an actual connection. If the intertext you're proposing or if the reference or symbol that you're proposing ends up explaining more than you intended it to explain, that suggests that the unity exists external to your own mind. And that's why it is so significant to discover things you weren't actually looking for. Because if the unity is real, the unity involves more than is immediately present in your mind. But if it's a figment of your imagination, of course, the features you are going to consider are only ones that were explicitly in your mind to begin with. So, what is the point of this text? Well, let's read Genesis 29. We'll begin in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey, 
and he came to a land of the people of the east. This is after Jacob has been persecuted by his brother Esau. Esau has driven him out from his home. He's been exiled from the land which has been given to him and his fathers, and he is the designated heir and always was from the beginning. And uh, having been designated as the heir to the covenant, I've discussed this elsewhere specifically in my video on the ladder to heaven, Esau seeks to kill him, and he is driven out of his homeland. Now, the story of Jacob's development and ultimately the reconciliation of these two brothers. I don't think Jacob was sinning in, in being a quote-unquote trickster. By the way, that's a complicated issue. There's a lot of subtleties to the text. Um, but uh, the reconciliation of these two brothers and the elevation of Jacob spiritually is the great narrative arc in his life. And it has a lot to teach us, both typologically in terms of its relationship to Jesus Christ um, through King David, because Jacob is the... Um, forerunner of King David, the two figures uh, mirror each other in, in a thousand different ways um, through actually the figure of Moses. You can always go uh, 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 more and more specific as you pan more and more outwards. Uh, but um, it teaches us a great deal about Christ and because Christ is always totus Christus, as Augustine says, head and body, Christ and the church teaches us a great deal about ourselves as well. So, this is the context. Jacob has been driven into exile, and now he is going to meet his uh, uh, near relation, Laban, while he is in exile. Jacob went on his journey. He came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the mouth of the well was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Haran? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. See, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together until the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob drew near and rolled the stone from the well, mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Now, what do you notice here? Here we have a woman who is coming to a particular place, and this place has a large stone which is meant to be rolled away. Jacob rolls the stone away and greets Rachel. Likewise, in the Gospel of Mark, where we have this uh, verbal connection, we also have a similar narrative arc. We've got women who are approaching the tomb, and they find the stone is rolled away. Now, all we have right now are superficial aspects of the narrative. It doesn't actually tell us anything about the significance of what we are reading. In order to understand the significance of what we are reading, we have to understand its significance. In other words, what it signifies. And a sign is a symbol. You can see even in our common English language, if you open up the words that we use, it actually will tell us a lot about the concepts which we are looking at. First, I want you to think about the nature of a well. A well is uh, very often used um, in 
as a, the equivalent of a spring. Uh, very often it's the same word, in fact. Uh, and the first such object in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, is in Genesis chapter 2, where at the top of Mount Eden, Eden is on a holy mountain, that is why the river flows downwards, that's confirmed in Ezekiel, which tells us that it was the mountain of God, where the devil was, who was a guardian cherub. Uh, on the holy mountain, at the top of it, there was a spring, and that spring flowed out, it was the source of a river, and it flowed downwards into the garden, and in the garden it split into four rivers, and those four rivers flowed to the ends of the earth, dividing up the earth into its pre-flood territories. Now that word divided is then used in Genesis chapter 10. It is not a particularly common word. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 10, it refers to the division of the nations. Now, this makes a great deal of sense because rivers are, both in history and in the symbolism of the Bible, often the boundary points of particular lands, whether we're talking about between nations or simply within a nation among the various tribes. The Jordan River, for example, runs through the center of the uh, land of Israel. Euphrates marks out its border. And in Genesis chapter 2, in the context of this spring, in the context of this river, we have Adam, who is in the garden, fertile place. God gives him a bride, gives him Eve. And Adam is permitted to realize his role as image of God. He does the kind of things that God does. God gives life to the world. He multiplies his presence into the world. He mirrors himself by creating fruit trees which bear fruit and uh, clouds of birds and beasts and fish who multiply themselves and expand into the world and are living and active and, and, and energetic. Uh, God is life himself, who is infinitely quick and rapid and energetic, uh, and he gives his life to the world without losing any himself. And when Adam and Eve multiply, they are mirroring the life of God. That is why be fruitful and multiply is given in the context of man being male and female, who are the image of God, meant to attain a deeper likeness of his glory. Multiplication is a way of extending oneself into the world through the creative life of God. That is why, in fact, in Genesis chapter 4, we are told of the first conception which ever occurred in the history of the world, and it says that Eve begot a man with the Lord. That's the literal rendering of the passage, and the point here is that it is God who is the father of every human being because it is the creative will of God which permits there to be the conception of new images of God. He does so instrumentally through the conjugal union of male and female, and you will notice that the way that union is described is Adam knew his wife. That's not a euphemism. It's describing the nature of the conjugal act, not attempting to skirt around it. In fact, it's the opposite of a euphemism. It is a mutual indwelling that is so intimate that it is described as knowledge itself. It is a kind of knowledge that produces what is known. In other words, it is the kind of knowledge which mirrors God's intimate and perfect awareness of the life of the Son by the Holy Spirit. And this is the context for the first well, the first spring in biblical history, the extension of life into the world and the union of bridegroom and bride. 
Now, this is not the only example of this. If this were it, if this were the only relationship that the idea of a well had with the idea of bridegroom and bride, you could quite justly say that I was seeing things. But let's look at a few other examples. Here's one. Genesis chapter 24, verse 20. Uh, Isaac, uh, or Isaac's representative, meets Rebekah as she runs to the well to draw water. And she draws for all his camels. Now, you should note something interesting here, which is that in Genesis chapter 29, it is Jacob who is drawing out water for Rachel. Here, it's the inverse. Rebekah is drawing out water for the representative of her husband-to-be. In Exodus chapter, I believe it's Exodus chapter 2, might be chapter 3, but in Exodus chapter 2 or 3, uh, Moses meets his wife. Where does he meet his wife? He meets his wife at a well. He meets his wife after driving away those who were attempting to persecute the daughters of Jethro. You will notice there are seven such daughters, and Moses' protection of these seven daughters is a husbandly, I don't know what the adjective, appropriate adjective or adverb would be, but it is a kind of thing that one does as a husband or bridegroom. So the guardianship or feeding of another is the masculine vocation in relation to feminine. Now remember, masculine and feminine aren't the same as male and female. All of us are both masculine and feminine in relation to different things. Uh, all mankind, whether male or female, is masculine in relation to creation, thus animal husbandry. We all give life to the creation. But we're all feminine in relation to God. We all receive life from God. Masculinity and femininity describes two different aspects of the single reciprocal union that exists between subjects. One moves in relation to another. The other receives and reciprocates that movement back. Neither is passive. Both are active. But there is a distinctive role in um, this twofold relationship. And when Moses does this in relation to the seven daughters of Jethro, it's very interesting because later in the biblical text, we will find a book like Isaiah, where seven women take hold of a man and ask to be called by his name. Well, this is what marriage is all about, right? You get uh, a family name, and the family name is perpetuated through the male line. So you want to establish a legacy for your family. You marry and you have children, and the children take the name of their father, and the woman takes the name of the husband. That's the way that it, you know, has customarily worked. And I'm not trying to start a debate here. I'm making a point about biblical theology. Um, uh, so uh, in an Isaiah 4, it is actually talking about the Messianic king, which is quite interesting. And the seven women there are also very strikingly linked with seven nations. Because later in Isaiah 11, we are going to find that the Israelite exiles are drawn from seven nations. And we will find nations being described as healed and converted. And we will find that Gentiles themselves are, are being identified as kind of returning exiles uh, of their own. And uh, Jesus, in the Gospels, he rebukes the disciples for not understanding that the feeding of the 4,000 with seven leftover baskets compared with the feeding of the 5,000 with 12 leftover baskets. He says, you should have understood what this meant. Well, what does it mean? Many of us say, what does it mean? Well, seven is associated with the nations, 70 nations. There are seven nations there in Isaiah. It's, it's used elsewhere in Scripture for the nations. Seven nations, 12, 12 tribes of Israel, so on and so forth. 
Why is this used in the context of the book of Exodus? Why is it used in Genesis chapter 24? Remember, the covenant line is going through Abraham and Isaac. Rebecca isn't yet part of it. She's a, uh, uh, she's a relative, but she's not part of this line. Well, this is part of what it means to extend the blessing of God outwards. How precisely is another family incorporated into the covenant family? Well, it's through a marriage. That's why the various royal families of Europe were intermarrying with each other. In theory, when a when two families are linked together by marriage of two representative persons, their interests become conjoined, and it becomes much less likely that they're going to go to war with each other. Well, this kind of extension of divine blessing through intermarriage, through the extension of the web of family relations, is part of what's going on here. See this later going on in the book of Judges. The first marriage that Samson has... James Jordan argues, you don't have to agree, but I think it's a persuasive argument. The first marriage is an offer to the Philistines to attach their destiny to the God of Israel. It is the second relationship, it's never a marriage, with Delilah, where Samson falls prey to the Philistines rather than the Philistines becoming converted by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see later in Genesis itself that uh, Jacob was seeking to arrange a marriage alliance with the Shechemites uh, in order that the Shechemites would come under the covenant. They were going to be circumcised. They were circumcised, and Jacob's oldest sons, uh, they went and slaughtered the Shechemite men as they were recovering from circumcision. And Jacob says about them, you have made me a stench in the noses of the people all around. Why does that matter? Because the patriarchs were called to be prophets, evangelizing the Gentiles of the Canaanite world. Genesis 15, their iniquity was not yet full. Some people say, well, why does that matter? What was God doing to alert the Canaanites? Well, we're told throughout the, throughout the book of Genesis, patriarchs are offering redemption to the Canaanites. If you were a Canaanite, you wanted to live in your historic homeland, all you had to do is you convert. You convert, you go down to Egypt with Israel, you come back up, you inherit your historic homeland as a member of the Israelite nation. You take on the name of Abraham, but your bloodline is still going back to the Canaanites. Most, in fact, Israelites were by blood descended from this large group of people who went into the land of Goshen with Jacob, much larger than the 70 named individuals. Those are just the heads of the family household. Uh, most of them have joined up with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob along the way. Another example of wells and marriage in the Bible. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. They talk about marriage. That's what they're discussing. And she, he says, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. So Jesus is number seven. He's the seventh and true husband. And she is one of, I believe it is four women in the Gospel of John who are described using Eve imagery. We find in, the, uh, in John chapter 2, the Virgin Mary is the first one to be described with Eve imagery. And Jesus, at her request, provides wine. She provides, he provides drink to the people at a wedding feast. He provides wine from a rock, six stone jars. Here in John chapter 4, it's at the sixth hour. They're at a well, a stone well. In fact, it is the well of Jacob, the Samaritan woman says. And uh, Jesus provides drink. He speaks about the water of life. And then John chapter 19, Mary is at the foot of the cross. She's with the beloved disciple. And 
from the side of Christ, there comes forth blood and water. And it is from the side of Christ, just as Eve was taken from Adam's side, so also is the church born of the side of Christ, reborn in blood of the Eucharist and the water of baptism. Uh, and this is happening at the sixth hour as well. In Genesis chapter 26, we have quite a detailed narrative relative to the size of the book as a whole about how Isaac and his servants were attempting to dig wells. I believe it's three or four wells that they attempted to dig before they finally have one that is successful on a permanent basis. So in Genesis chapter 29, when Jacob meets his bride-to-be at a well, it has a context. It has a context that we see in hindsight in light of the whole Bible, but it also has a context cumulatively that we have built forward from Genesis chapter 2 all the way to Genesis chapter 26 because we've seen wells before, and at these wells we have seen marriages contracted. So when we see this pattern, we should already have reason, even if we've never seen this story before, to think that... I think something about marriage is going to transpire here. And so in the narrative of Jesus' resurrection, when we find women rushing to anoint Jesus' body, there's a large stone that is rolled away, and it's alluding to this passage, we should also be thinking in terms of the imagery of Christ the bridegroom. But that's not the only image which is significant uh, as far as this connection goes. Note the emphasis here in Genesis 29 on sheep. Uh, the sheep are watered from this well. Well, of course, in the prophets and in the Gospels, we are the sheep of Christ. God is the divine shepherd of Israel. The Messiah is the Davidic shepherd of his people. And throughout the Jacob story in particular, it is sheep who are the central animals. In the uh, ritual laws of Leviticus, one of the ascension offerings often translated the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering, because the whole animal was burned up. But the meaning, the word Allah means ascension offering. It is that by which you ascend into the divine presence. Well, one of the ascension offerings is from the flock. It is from the sheep. And as James Jordan has argued, the three different ascension offerings each allude in detail to specific narrative sections of the Bible because what we are doing in the sacrificial system is entering into the corporate history which God has enacted in that history which has transpired um, in the text preceding this. Uh, the separation between ritual and uh, uh, narrative is a, a misguided separation. And we would see one way in which source criticism is so ludicrous, we understand how intimately bound together the patriarchal narratives are with the ritual laws of the book of Leviticus. Uh, throughout Jacob's story, uh, sheep are a central symbol for Jacob's people. That is why, for example, we are told that Jacob's family is multiplying precisely as his flocks are multiplying. His children are being born as many sheep are being born. We see, as he returns into the land, he divides his family into two separate groups. And I'm talking not just about his blood family, but about his, uh, 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 his whole community of people. He has a whole community of people who are under his covenant, who are following him, who are in the circumcision, who are going to go down into Egypt, uh, and who are going to come out and inherit the land of, uh, of promise. Uh, but he divides his people into two uh, distinct sections. And 
when he is with Laban, he uh, he undergoes or he facilitates a um, how do I describe this? Um, basically, he makes it so that certain sheep are born. Uh, one color, and certain sheep are born another color. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in this text. And actually, it has a great deal to do with Passover. Basically, what happens is Laban, who's been changing Jacob's wages um, all throughout his time of servitude, and Laban is described in terms that will later be uh, come to describe Pharaoh. Jacob, when he escapes Laban, Laban goes out and he pursues him, just as Pharaoh does with the Israelites in Egypt. Uh, and... Um, uh, Laban promises at Jacob's request to give him all of the black and spotted sheep that he asks for. Uh, and what it says is Jacob, he goes and he passes through the flock and he takes for himself the, uh, the spotted and speckled among the goats. And he goes on to um, facilitate the multiplication specifically of those sheep who are promised to him. Now, the word that is used is very interesting because it's exactly the word that is used to describe the Lord passing through the land of Egypt and taking the firstborn Israelites for himself. And the firstborn Israelites, remember that they are the priests of their families. There's this before the consecration of the Levites. They're the priests of their families. They're the consecrated people. And the priests are correspondent in a very special way to the sacrifices which they offer. And uh, the firstborn Israelites who belong to the Lord are identified because there is a visible marking on the doorpost of each Israelite household and every Egyptian or Gentile household who wants to participate in this act of redemption. They all knew who God was. They've been living in Egypt for the past year. They knew what was going on. And Moses' offer was, as far as we can tell, an open offer. And there are lots of Gentiles who went out um, of Egypt with Israel. So this was not just something for ethnic Israelites. Those Israelites who didn't participate... They lost their children. Those Egyptians who did participate, they had theirs saved. In any case, the same kind of thing is going on here. Jacob passes through his flock, he, uh, Laban's flock. He takes for himself those sheep who are visibly marked, uh, just as the Lord does on Passover. The same word is actually used again of Joseph when Joseph passes through all the land of Egypt. Except this time it is to give life to Egypt rather than the angel of the Lord passing through Egypt um, unto death. Now, Joseph, like Jacob, takes a tithe from the land of Egypt as his wage. He buys back a great deal of Egypt's productivity just as Jacob takes the speckled sheep as his wage and God takes the firstborn Israelites as his people. To be consecrated to the Lord in his service is to be in a fashion owned by him. It is a kind of ownership because ownership is about the consecration of one subject in relation to another. You own your land because it's consecrated to you. Those who are uh, in your service, paid laborers, that work is something they sell to you. And in fact, when we look at the language about armies who go and they conquer a land and they possess the land on behalf of the nation they are fighting for, one, the word that is used for army is also used for wealth because the same kind of thing is going on. Wealth, you use that capital to secure dominion of a particular thing. That's the same thing you do with blood when you go to war. There are many conceptual connections here that can be illustrated by looking at things that we first think have nothing in common, but on closer inspection 
have quite a great deal in common. And if you look later in Scripture, take a look at Leviticus chapter 16. You've got two goats. Here we have another separation, one from another. One of the goats is said to be for the Lord. The other is for Azazel, or for destruction. Azazel is a person. Azazel is the devil. He is the one who is in the wilderness, the place of exile. This is kind of the horizontal correspondent to the grave or Sheol. Remember, if upwards is inwards, then uh, outwards is downwards, which means the wilderness, shale, correspond to each other, which is why Satan is said to dwell in the wilderness in the apocalypse based on preceding biblical revelation, and it is why Azazel is in the place of the wilderness. Uh, and actually this is, remember I've mentioned before how uh, the Day of Atonement is essentially the Mosaic Covenant version of the annual renewal of the world under the dominion of man, which is a celebration and commemoration and thus an entrance into the Noachic reality. Okay, so nations from all around the world have this liturgical cycle, which at the new year, um, uh, at the new year, the king, because in the Noachic covenant, the uh, uh, head of state is the head of cult, the priest king. Okay, that's why Pharaoh takes a 20% tithe in the book of Genesis because he's both high priest and head of state. 10%, 10%, 20% then. Um, and the uh, priest king will go into the temple or up on the architectural mountain, and it he will reenact the creation of the world. And in doing so, he realizes and demonstrates and proclaims the fact that the political cosmos is integral to the actual cosmos. Creation is being restructured under the feet of man. That's what happened in the flood. And that is what is commemorated liturgically in these various Gentile sacrificial services. Now, of course, this is corrupted in many nations towards idolatry, but it begins as something devoted to the one God. In fact, in China, for example, that rite called the border sacrifice never ceased being about the one God. But in Egypt, uh, there is a rite, I think it may be the very same rite, that um, where all of the impurity is placed on a particular animal, which is then uh, sent out to destruction. And that is the kind of thing which is going on with the two goats. One of the goats is for the Lord. It goes, uh, it, it represents the nation that, uh, who is purified and atoned for. The other is for destruction. It represents the rebels within Israel. We see them personified in the book of Revelation where the beast um, is sent out to destruction. Revelation is a large heavenly day of atonement, and those who are permanently in rebellion against God are permanently subject to death. They tear themselves apart, and that is what the second death is, and it is represented by the goat going out to Azazel. Now, the separation of these sheep and these goats, and I'm not saying separation of sheep from goats, but sheep and goats, they're uh, often treated as if they are the same animal, and it's only in one offering, I believe it's the wave offering, uh, that they actually are distinguished sacrificially and liturgically. In Passover, you can have both sheep and a goat. Um, uh, it is in the Jacob narrative that we get the first uh, traces of this liturgical uh, reality. <laughs>